America knows war. They are war masters. We tortured some folks. So I'm going to uh, shirt front, Mr. Putin. You bet you are. Uh, you bet I am. You were born with democracy choices. You have free election right, but we don't. Please help us. Captain Rod save the world. What a week. Welcome to Pat and Rod Save the World. Two weeks, rather. Yeah, actually, yeah. We uh, we missed out last week. I was uh, I was away for the weekend, uh, and then well, I was away directly after the weekend. Yeah. So circumstances really conspired against us. We'd say sorry, but you are listening to this for no money. So. Yeah, you get what you pay for. <laughs> <laughs> it's the week ending first uh, March, actually. Yesterday was the last day of February, right? Yeah, last day of summer. Yeah. Now, what? How pathetic is this? Um, the twenty eighth of February. I didn't know how many days the last month had. <laughs> it's on. the week ending twenty eighth February two thousand and fifteen. Were you You're checking here? if it was a leap year or something? Oh no! I just February wigs me out. <laughs> it always catches me. Like each year, I just am surprised at how short it is. <laughs> I just need to build it into my mind at some point, but I never have time. Yeah. So, I am Pat Brown. I'm Roderick Macon. And this week we've got three topics that are interestingly linked. I would say. Yeah. Um, it's. Uh, I mean, shit. There's been so much happening in the world the past couple of weeks. It, uh, we yeah. could have spoken about any number of things, really, but we we ended up deciding on uh, on these three topics. Uh, that being the uh, uh, assassination of Boris Nemtsov, the uh, main Russian opposition leader in Moscow, um, the FCC, and their decision over in the states to uphold net neutrality, and uh, back home here in Australia, uh, the metadata retention laws pretty much getting the go ahead with the opposition, uh, the Labor Party here. So-called opposition. Yeah, basically just... Um, giving it up. Yeah. Um, we'll get to that later. It's a super depressing topic, at least for me. Yeah, um, no, I, I just uh, I just got a wave of depression even just saying it. <laughs> <laughs> it's like that, man. I feel the same way. It's so tragic. Uh, okay, you know, forget about what our ancestors sort of fought for. And all. Um, okay, Putin, mate, you're much more across this than I am, um, so talk about it. Okay, uh, so basically, um, just this week, uh, Boris Nemtsov, who's um, you know a major opposition voice uh, to uh, to Putin in Russia, uh, basically just gunned down in the street in Moscow. Um, apparently, shot four times in the back. Uh, I'm, I haven't actually seen any official confirmation of that. Uh, I read seven shots were fired. Okay, uh, these things can change. These things can change. Uh, <laughs> it's Russia. Yeah, I, I mean, shit. When I was in Ukraine, the uh, the mayor of Kharkiv was apparently shot in the back, uh, right up until the point the uh, the doctor I interviewed said, "No, no, no, entry wound in the front." Uh, he was definitely shot from someone standing in front of him. Uh, but if you go on his Wikipedia page to this day, it's citing a BBC. Uh, article about him being shot in the back. So anyway, we don't know for sure if this guy was shot four times or seven times. The fact it is, was in the back. It was in the front. The fact is, gunned down in the street in the middle of fucking Moscow. Um, and uh, we have a, a bit of a disagreement, uh, Pat and I, um, over uh, 
basically how much we think Putin is involved in this. Yeah, so, I mean, just to put a number on it, probability-wise, yeah. your view was 90-odd percent that Putin was directly involved and made the call. Am I right about that? Uh, that he was involved and he was, and this guy was killed with his uh, foreknowledge and approval, yeah. tacit or otherwise. Yeah, okay, so tacit approval is blurry. But, I mean, ultimately, you consider it that there's a 90% chance that it wouldn't have happened unless Putin approved it yeah, in some way. Exactly. Right. So my view of it is it's really 50-50. Um, not for a second do I not think that Putin is a criminal. Um, I just am aware that there are a lot of crazy people in Russia, many of whom consider themselves died-in-the-wall supporters of Putin, um, who may well have gone off reservation on this one. Um, not to mention the fact that there are people who are further to the right than Putin is, even, um, who may well have taken it upon themselves to kill this guy. So my view is that it's sort of a, I mean, I'd say 50-50 that Putin was involved um, with the assassination. And that in of itself is a pretty terrible thing. Um, you know, even believing that there's a, a kind of a coin flip chance that Putin approved this um, is it's pretty dire for Russia. So, I mean, we differ on this because I don't know basically if Putin is a... I hesitate to use the word irrational... I don't see him as a Hitler-esque figure. I mean, would you consider that he's in the same ballpark? Not in terms of the deeds, but in terms of the motivations and the ability to disrupt the global order? Uh, no. 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 Um, but I do think that he sees himself as the successor to Stalin. Um, and he's not about to start uh, murdering tens of millions of uh of his fellow Russians who disagree with him, but he does uh, see himself as, uh, and has spent the last 20 years setting himself up as the single great leader of Russia. Um, he's pushed, you know, a major uh, boost to the, uh, the, you know, cult of personality, um, both for himself and a sort of uh, re-energizing of, um, of it for, for Stalin as well. Uh, and he hasn't shied away from, you know, criminal acts, from murder. Uh, yeah, I mean, Litvinenko, I actually follow that story quite closely yeah. because to me that's actually the best indicator of what Putin is involved with or, or capable of. Yeah. Because Litvinenko, it, there's very little doubt at this point that he was poisoned by the Russian security services. Yeah. And there's just no way that they would have acted without Putin's approval. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, there have been developments in that story. Suffice to say that the inquiry that's being undertaken in Britain currently makes it quite clear that they were Russian agents. Um, they left radioactive traces all over London, including in their hotel rooms, um, which would kind of indicate that if you're going to kill someone, maybe radioactive isotopes aren't the way to do it because they do tend to leave a trail. Uh, so just pro tip to Putin yeah, and his boys, no, yeah. it's probably not a good idea to do that. And so I suppose... Not a short half-life. No, no, that's going to be around for a while. 
Um, Difficult to cover up that evidence. Yes, yes. Uh, Geiger counters are hard to fool. So I suppose the reason that I think there really is a significant chance that Putin was involved and approved this is because there's very little question that he was involved in killing Litvinenko. The thing that I suppose I see as a restraint on Putin in this, though, is that I really do think that it's a super uh, detrimental thing to his control of Russia. Because even the most hardened Russian politician will have a shiver go up their spine as a result of this. Uh, And uh, what you just said there to me, makes it more likely yeah, he was right. behind it. That shiver that has gone up the spine of even his most hardened... Uh, I, I, he sees... Uh, fear isn't the only way that Putin controls Russia. Not by any stretch of the imagination. I don't think it's even the biggest way, but it is something he uses. Ooh. And if this guy... If Nemtsov... Um, can get gunned down in the street, that, you know, not many people are ever going to want to speak up for a long, long time. And especially the things that Nemtsov was currently uh, speaking up about. Um, uh, one thing I'd sort of uh, noticed in the, uh, the news about Russia and Ukraine over the past uh, couple of months um, was that there had just started to be um, some grassroots Russian opposition to the war in Ukraine. Um, namely from the families of soldiers who are there who, you know, what the fuck? I, don't, I thought we weren't mm. supposed to have Russian troops there. And that was, it was just starting. Um, and then you've got uh, Nevsov who's, you know, really starting to get vocal, speaking out about it. Uh, I read a report again, it was just a, a, a report in a paper, haven't seen any sort of official confirmation of it, that at the time he was, uh, he was assassinated, um, he was actually walking with a, um, a Ukrainian leader um, who, would, uh, who you know, was co- who'd come to, to Moscow to, to speak with him uh, about what was going on in the country. Um, and, I, you know, it'll be interesting. That uh, apparent that uh, person was apparently immediately whisked away by Russian security personnel, and I have, I have fears of what's happening to them right now. Um, yeah. And, uh, yeah, it just... So you think it's actually really consistent with um, his interests yeah. to scare people in the Russian elite this much? Yeah. Mm. Uh, you know, people have just started speaking out about this, I'll put a stop to that. Yeah. I did read in the New York Times that there have been some fairly vocal... Basically, people in the Russian... current Russian power elite saying that what Putin's doing in Ukraine is not a good thing for Russia. And so it's possible that he considers this is an important time or this is a critical time to dampen dissent amongst his own ranks. A lot of people, a lot of important people uh, in uh, in the Russian elite are are losing money. How do you say this guy's name, by the way? uh, Nemtsov, I don't know. Nemtsov. I mean, I'm pretty sure. He was actually himself a former Kremlin operator um, and I believe was previously a part of the current ruling clique in the Kremlin. And apparently 
he was saying that he did not really fear for his life because he considered that as a former member of that clique, he had a kind of immunity. Mm. And that Putin was interested in, at some point, affecting a handover of power. And that if he killed people, this would make it impossible for him to do the handover because he would then have to fear for his own life yeah. uh, uh, when he and his boys were out of power. It'd be interesting to find out. I don't know the... Um, uh, I, I haven't read that, but... I, it sounds like something that he uh, he would say, but I'd be interested to find out when he said it, um, because Putin uh, in the sort of early two thousands was all about a handover at some point, and then he did the whole switcheroo with the puppet president. He went back to prime minister, then back to president again. Yeah. Um, I, I think any thoughts of handover of power for Putin. Um, have pretty much gone out the window at this point, well, uh, at least until he's literally can't do it anymore. We we watched that PBS documentary. What was it called? Uh, Putin's well, Way or something I can't like that. Remember. It's a recent frontline PBS American documentary, and the the fundamental argument that they were making was that the reason Putin came to power was because Yeltsin needed someone who could show. That loyalty to a formerly powerful person and let them go on their way without prosecution yeah. because everybody was guilty of something. And the point that they were making essentially was that Putin was past the point where he considered he could ever hand over power. That mm. was actually their major argument. Yeah. And so, honestly, that probably supports your view more than it does mine um, in the sense that I would say, well, this is a huge step for Putin to take if he was involved with it because it could really anchor him in a position where he has to hold on. He has to stay on that bull. And I suppose if he never relinquishes power, there's no reason he shouldn't do this. Um... Nonetheless, I mean, I have admitted that I think that the guy's got the ability to do something like this. I just think that there's a very, very significant probability that it was someone acting independently of him. Um, I mean, I don't believe that Putin controls everything that goes on in Russia. And there are a lot of crazy people there. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting one. Yeah. I think it just, uh, it, yeah, there are a lot of crazy people <laughs> in Russia and, uh, and no, he doesn't control every, uh, everything that happens in, uh, in the country. Um, but I think it'd be way too much of a, uh, a coincidence for me to, um, I, well, I mean, I've already put a number on it. I think it, the chances of it being a, um, a coincidence that this guy who Putin would dearly love to see killed is gunned down at this particular point in time. Um, uh, yeah, by someone uh, without the um, knowledge or approval of Putin, uh, I would say, yeah, chances of that, I think, are about 10%. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, it's very hard to, to know, and it'll be interesting to see how things play out. Um, against Putin, though, are the stories that are starting to be propagated by uh, media outlets 
close to the government, which seemed to suggest that there were personal situations that Nepsov was involved with yeah, that they, have that caused what has happened here, which seems to be super, super unlikely. Yeah, and you know the uh, the speed at which these statements have been coming out. Um, like they had the smear campaign ready to go the moment he was killed, basically. Now, it's possible that, you know, he's, a, he's an opponent to Putin. They're going to have a, a smear campaign up their sleeve for any purpose. Mm. Um, but, uh, yeah, it's not, a, uh, it's not a good look for them. Um, something you, you, uh, you mentioned uh, that um, was interesting, and I've noticed it too, um, is the, uh, the grudging respect that the American right has for Putin. Um, and I, um, I wonder in a way what, uh, you know, this assassination might do to that if it's, um, if you, uh, if you have people who've been almost Putin apologists on the American right over the past, uh, 12 to 18 months, um, I wouldn't say they're, they're apologists, apologists for his policies, no. like but they, they yeah. sympathize and enjoy his aggression. Yeah, exactly. Um. They like his method of operation. Yeah. Um, um, at the same time, really, as calling for uh, much greater US involvement against him. Yeah. The American right clearly has a weird schizophrenic relationship, or the sort of more extreme right has yeah. a schizophrenic relationship with Putin. Um, it's, it's an interesting thing. You're right. There's been a lot of praise for how he's done things, not so much what, what he's, he's doing. Done. Yeah, well, because that would stop yeah. them from being able to call for military conflict themselves, yeah. <laughs> which is ultimately what they're interested in. Yeah. Uh, just a lot of sort of frustrated desk jockeys who want to sort of uh, get people killing each other yeah. to, to satisfy their uh, self-perception as movers and shakers of history. Yeah. Uh, and I just wonder what this might do to, um, to like, if this will just be too much and you'll, are we going to stop hearing some of that? Some I think grudging admiration now. Uh, I mean, um, I think that the, it was tailing off anyway yeah. because of how aggressive he's been in the Ukraine. Um, but it's an interesting point to note. So we were, as sort of a segue, we were talking, Rod and I, earlier about how important freedom of speech is. And that you look at a lot of the nasty things that America has been involved with over the last few years. And well, also not just the last few years, sorry to interrupt there. Sure. Um, but, uh, you know, going back to, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, uh, you know, when you had things like, you know, America doing, getting, you know, dodgy military involvement in its close neighbours, like, you know, Cuba and South America and that sort of thing. Uh, and you had you know, a criminal like, and I say this because he was, like uh, Richard uh, Nixon, you know, attaining the, the presidency and that sort of thing. Uh, and what the difference was between um, yeah, what America as a superpower was, uh, was doing then and what Russia is doing now. Um, and it basically came down to, uh, you know, the the importance of freedom of expression and freedom of speech, where you had, um, you know, a viable and in many ways effective political opposition uh, who could 
and were allowed to be a viable and effective opposition, and where you had um, a, uh, a free um, a free media. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, we see. So I mean, yeah, Bay of Pigs became a, a major embarrassment um, to mm. America because people were allowed to report on it. Um, Nixon was Nixon was brought down by freedom of expression. Mm. Um, uh, and so, you know, we came, you know, ended up coming to the conclusion, correct me if I'm wrong, that basically the difference between, um, actually, what's the, I can't work, I can't remember how, uh, how we put it. Well, it was kind of like if <coughs> in an effort to combat parochialism in our own mind, mm. the conclusion that we inevitably reach as to why our system is better is that there's more freedom of speech. Yeah. That's really the only difference though. In terms of the number of lives um, ruined as a result of foreign policy or things of that nature, I yeah. mean America arguably is actually worse. Yeah. A million people in Iraq. And um, if you want to go back a bit more historically, you'd say that the British Empire were worse than that again. Oh, well, yeah, I mean, although it's kind of hard to beat the Americans in Vietnam, three to five million are the estimates for Vietnamese dead mm. in that. It'd be interesting because, I mean, uh, the British Empire had a few, a couple of hundred years of it. That's true. They had longevity, if yeah. not the sort and of it, yeah, industrial I if, killing I if, power. Yeah, uh, and there was plenty of industrial level killing as well mm. once they got the, uh, you know, the Maxim, Maxim machine guns mowing down tribesmen. Um, I suppose what you can say is that the West treats their own better by allowing, or sort of NATO countries treat their own better by allowing them to have freedom of expression. Um, although you see shadows of Putin-esque behaviour, um, especially in the United States, the way that Occupy Wall Street protesters were treated, for instance, being pepper sprayed and hauled off to prison and surveilled, yeah. because they were outside of the commonly accepted division of power between uh, corporatist Democrats and then Republicans. It's, I mean, that was Putin-esque. Mm. Yep. It, it, there's just no two ways about it. There was really a very violent response from the state against people who seemed to be threatening the incumbent powers in the United States. But I can't think of um, an Occupy Wall Street person who was gunned down. No. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? I mean, there just still is this qualitative difference between them and us. Yeah. Um, no. I, I do believe that honestly, objectively, even as someone who lives in a country and has biases, I do think that we're better, basically. Um, but let's let's yeah. So back, so uh, the the segue was if that's how if that's how important freedom of expression and freedom of speech uh, is to our culture. Firstly, some great news for that over in America, um, being the upholding of net neutrality um, in the uh, in the states. Now you know more about this one than I do, so yeah, you cover the. Uh, I actually don't know a great deal about it. I okay. just know that it was a vote by the regulator. And it was, there were five potential votes, and it was along party lines. Three Democrats defeated two Republicans yeah. in um, holding a vote that essentially upholds net neutrality 
by allowing for the government to regulate um, the large cable internet providers in the United States. I do not know much more about it because I know there was a court ruling that augured against net neutrality mm -hmm. not too long ago. But, I mean, the legislative regime is complicated and I don't know the ins and outs of it. But media have essentially said that, well, this enshrines the, the, the legal status of net neutrality in the United States for the foreseeable future, which is great. Mm. I personally am a little bit conflicted about it. Um, I see this as two different kinds of freedom in conflict. I tend to be keen on the idea of more freedom rather than less freedom in virtually all areas. Yep. And I think you would be the same, actually. Yeah. Um, maybe you'd be a bit more trigger-happy about regulation than I would be if either of us were king for a day. But this is essentially... I mean, I, I understand that the people providing the internet pipes are spending money on them and like the idea of being able to uh, privilege certain customers in order to make more money. That is perfectly reasonable. But the reason I come down against them being able to do that is that I do consider the distribution of information to be like medicine mm. and or, or sort of well-being and health, such a critical part of societal uh, yeah. infrastructure that it can't be left up to the vagaries of the market, particularly when, when you, you've only got two or three providers yeah, who are acting like a fucking oligopoly anyway. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and you're, you're right when you say it's sort of competing freedoms, but it, like it literally is the freedom of the rich provider companies yeah. to get richer yeah. at the expense of everyone else. Oh, yeah, that's and, it, mate. And I'm not losing sleep over yeah. it. Um, but put it this way, I would lose some sleep over it if there was real competition. If there were a few dozen different yeah. operators in the space and there was real competition and the, the companies providing the services didn't have the worst customer service scores and, and you know, thousands of internet rants against how badly they treat people, yeah. I would lose some sleep over it. But right now, I kind of acknowledge that there doesn't seem to be a better approach than the one that, the, uh, that, that seems to have taken force from here on in. Yeah, and I mean, uh, sort of um, why I think that this is a, a great victory for freedom of expression uh, is uh, like as you were saying, it's the the internet is really the spread of information, um, and it's the, the the internet has done you know many great things, but mo chiefly among them, the ability for anyone to learn pretty much anything at any time. Yeah, uh, and to allow upstart operators. Yeah, that's really the key in my view. To allow people who have no resources to uh, float an idea and essentially the idea operates on its merits. Yeah. Um, you can debate the merits of um, people trading cat pictures and taking selfies on Instagram, but the reality is, is that those products rose to prominence in what is as close to a pure meritocracy yeah. as we have. Um, and it, That's what people want to see. That's <laughs> it, yeah. I mean, and it feels like... I don't necessarily like, agree with it most of the times, but it, you, 
Yeah. And it's particularly important as well, I think, in an era where video is becoming more important because of increasing bandwidth, where bandwidth actually is really a, a super uh, restrictive... It, it's like it's one of the bottlenecks for an internet startup these days. If you're in the video space, is the ability to get the amount of bandwidth required to pump the videos out to the consumers. If cable companies had the ability to charge startups who are trying to compete against an incumbent not like Netflix, for instance, yeah. like you really are putting up a barrier that's virtually insurmountable for all but the richest startup operators. Yeah. As in, you're, you, you're limiting freedom of expression for the overwhelming majority in the favour of the rich few. Yeah, you are, especially when bandwidth is involved. Yeah. So people say, oh, well, I'm not sure Twitter ever would have existed if we didn't have net neutral. I mean, that's complete shit. Twitter would have been fine. They, I mean, the bandwidth isn't such a huge issue for them. Hmm. But for other kinds of content like audio and video, where you're chewing up a lot more bandwidth, it's a hugely consequential uh, decision and in my view basically positive even though I feel a little bit uncomfortable about restricting people from dealing as they will with their property um, you know they're just an oligopoly in the end so fuck those guys fuck them right in the ear fuck them right in the ear with net neutrality <laughs> um, so uh, so yeah that was a bit of sort of good news for freedom of expression maybe we should have finished on that topic. maybe we should have um, <laughs> Because <laughs> the next one's depressing as fuck. Uh, For Australians, by the way. Yeah. Um, and look, Americans, I think you'll find this one interesting. Brits, you guys have less in the way of guaranteed freedoms than the Americans. So I would, if I were you, consider this a harbinger of doom for you guys as well. Um, so If you're not already even talking about it over there, I haven't uh, seen any sort of uh, stories about metadata in the UK, but I can't imagine that it's not on the agenda. Oh, it's certainly on the agenda, but the, the government there, to the best of my knowledge, has not been as bold in enshrining this kind of scheme um, into sort of just the general purpose enforcement and regulation structure of society. So, to give you guys a bit of background, um, the Labour Party has caved um, Caved to, like the little bitches they are. Yeah, that's it, man. I mean, you'll not find any Labour or Liberal lovers on this podcast. Um, fuck them all in the ear. Uh, so they've said basically that they're going to support Tony Abbott's um, metadata laws. Now, metadata laws are essentially for internet service providers, hereafter known as ISPs to retain data about your internet usage for a period of two years. Mm -hmm. And it's going to cost the government $400 million because it is actually a quite serious technical undertaking yeah. to store and sort and make accessible the um, metadata about people's internet use. Yeah. I don't... Th I... I uh from the Sydney Morning Herald article that uh, had a read of, I don't think that's an official total either. I think that's an estimate. Yeah, um, right. And, you know, entirely possible and costing a lot more than that, which is, you know, great news since we're not in a budget emergency and all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it's a really, 
It's a major technical undertaking. You know, what's fascinating is how open the regulators have been, including ASIC, yeah. the ACCC, Australian, the Federal, Australian Police. Federal Police, about how important this will be for enforcing the law. So what they're essentially saying is, uh, we want access to this information, this surveillance information, to enforce our the laws that are currently on the books. It's, it's we need of, it to find terrorists. That's right. We need it to find child molesters. And Labor did propose originally that there be a warrant process yeah. for the regulators accessing the metadata, but they've discarded that yeah. and caved. At the first sign of, no, we won't have that. Oh, fair enough. We tried. Fuck you. So what you have is zero oversight to all Australian regulators, seemingly, accessing mounds of data mm. about every Australian that uses the internet. And just to be clear about what metadata is, because there seems to be some confusion on account of the uh, sort of lack of technophilia amongst our politicians, it's essentially data about internet use. So they're not necessarily going to read the emails, although I think the legislation specifically contemplates them being able to access the content. Yeah, I, I, I know. I, I, it, it implies that, but I don't see, in this article anyway, I don't see it saying that for sure. Let's just stop for a second and get this bit right. Yeah. two years yeah. at least after the fact of your actual browsing yeah. or use. Uh, and uh, restricted use in criminal cases, but the Attorney General can allow its use in civil proceedings at his discretion. Yes. So could be yeah, could be used for anything. Well, that's it. And I mean, at his discretion, like he may, I'm not sure what the legalities are in this area, but I can't imagine that it will be the Attorney General. Um, with a stroke of the pen, allowing for each use in civil cases. <laughs> I imagine that there would be some kind of blanket ruling issued for yeah. classes of case in favour of enforcement agencies yeah. to use it in civil proceedings. I would imagine that will be the case. Yeah. I, um, I read an article, I think it was from John Birmingham, I could be wrong, uh, Brisbane Times columnist, uh, and he was basically making the point that, look, if you're someone who has ever downloaded a TV show or some music um, illegally, you are far more likely to end up being the target of these laws than, you know, a homegrown terrorist out in the suburbs. Uh, the, someone from the Australian Federal Police immediately, uh, you know, denied that. But, um, but the, rea the reality is, is that enforcers like ASIC and the ACCC, yeah. who in some cases are dealing with they're, criminal cases, yeah. some cases. But you know I mean, who they're not looking for? Terrorists. Yeah, that's it. Like that. That's it. I mean, it's, <laughs> it's out and out obvious now that this is not just terrorism. Yeah. It's always been the justification for it. It's just really every enforcement agency able to sift yeah. through private information about Australian citizens. And yeah. this is where we get to the point Should where... Should we let people know what the ACCC is? All right, the ACCC is the Australian Competition Consumer Commission. Yeah. They... Not terrorist hunters. No. 
no, anything master hunters. Like, they essentially sort of administer things like the Australian consumer law, yeah. which is what rights you have if you purchase a product that stops working, mm. for instance. Um, so this is not heavy national security stuff, and neither is ASIC, by the way, the Australian Securities and Investments Commission, which is essentially a corporate regulator that um, takes care of administration around businesses. These guys are very frank about how important this will be for their enforcement activity. <laughs> and you know, honestly, I kind of give them credit for at least being honest about it. You know what I find interesting about that? Um, it's the, uh, the amazing disconnect that people don't seem to be picking up on in that on the one hand, you've got uh, the, the people in charge saying, don't worry, it's just metadata. We don't uh, actually, it's not actually finding that much out about you. And on the other hand, you've got them all saying how absolutely vital it is um, for them to uh, catch wrongdoers yeah. and how useful it is. So, yeah. like, you can't have it both ways. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point and exactly right. And it puts the lie to what they're saying. Yeah. It is a huge realignment of power. It really is. And, like, let's be honest, metadata includes data like the location you're at when you access the internet. Yeah. Okay. Now, just to sort of make clear how, in, how, how invasive that is, this means that if you use the internet from your mobile telephone, okay, the government can know any time over the previous two years where you were when you used the internet. Yeah. Now, I use the internet a lot. Okay, a lot, which means basically that the government is going to have a pretty sound record of every location I've been in yeah. for two years. I don't like that idea, and I don't think that I am a crazy civil libertarian for not liking that. And so this come this brings us to this next point about privacy, yeah, which I think is a super interesting discussion and where the fundamental disjuncture is here between us and perhaps the majority of the population. I don't think the majority of the population consider that privacy is essential for freedom of expression. Yeah, I don't, uh, and um, we probably don't have time to, to really go into it as, uh, as heavily as we could, but if anyone wants to hear more about that exact point, mm. an earlier podcast we did, Surveillance in Australia, uh, and I think it's titled that. Yeah. Um, and we went into great detail about that, um, about, you know, the uh, expression, if you've got, if you're doing nothing wrong, you've got nothing to fear, which uh, people have been saying again in the last week about this metadata stuff, basically puts you beneath my contempt if you use it. Um, yeah, you are just not thinking properly if that's the way. I mean, if you say that, you obviously don't believe what I consider to be a completely self-evident maxim that power corrupts. Yeah. That's essentially, I think, the difference between those people and us is that they think that power doesn't necessarily corrupt. Yeah. And I say, look at all of human history. Um, so, I mean, it's clear that privacy is a necessary precondition for freedom of expression, which yeah. I think everyone would agree is a necessary ingredient, for, ingredient of a democratic... Bleh. I'm having difficulty with speech here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, 
you, yeah, you would think that everyone in Western societies would agree that freedom of expression is, uh, you know, a necessary, fundamental uh, building block of Western society. Absolutely. By the way, where people where people don't seem to get it. Mm is how important privacy is to have true freedom of expression. And this has actually been established by Australian law. The High Court essentially reached the conclusion in the 1990s under Chief Justice Mason that freedom of political communication was a necessary ingredient for a representative democracy. And thus, even though our constitution didn't contain explicit guarantees of freedom of expression, it was an implied right. Yeah. That was what the court resolved. Uh, and that's good case law to this day. So, I mean, it's, it's been recognised by the highest court in the land that freedom of political communication is necessary for representative democracy. And the, I suppose the interesting question then becomes legally, just to sort of depart on a flight of fancy here, whether or not you could argue that um, f uh, privacy, a certain measure of privacy, is actually necessary for a representative democracy. And perhaps the Australian Constitution, even without its explicit guarantees, actually contains an implied right to privacy. I would like to hear yeah. I'd like to hear someone argue that in front of the High Court. In fact, if I weren't worried about the adverse costs impact, I might argue it myself. Um, and essentially say that this is not constitutionally valid, this, this particular um, legislative initiative. It'd be great to see someone do it. It would be expensive, though. It would. That's the problem. It would be expensive. But, I mean, things exist for that these days, like crowdfunding, yeah. for instance. Um, so, I don't know. Maybe I'll do a bit of thinking about that. Not that I'm not fucking busy enough. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I mean... Well, I also just... Um, you know, moving on for a second. I also don't think... A lot of people, uh, just trying to think of the best way of putting it, everyone uses the internet a lot. I think a lot of people don't realise how much they're giving away of themselves. Yeah, the reality is, is that people don't understand, even technical experts yeah. don't understand the, the, the reach of providing data about oneself because the techniques for analyzing and deriving insights from that data are improving. So when you give away data right now, the implications of you doing that are unclear, even to the most technically minded people. In 20 years time, with new algorithms and an exponential increase in processing power, it's very difficult to know. Very difficult yeah. to know what kinds of insights I mean, put it this way, there are already people in the technical community talking up building what's called a mind file, where essentially you keep a record of all of your own internet use, and then you allow for that to be used to create a mind clone of yourself in a computer. Wow. That's like a thing. So that's, that's the kind of the profundity of what can be conceivably derived from the information about what you do. If people think that maybe in the future it's possible to build a clone of you from the from this kind of data, <laughs> it's probably an indicator you might not want the government to 
to have all that data. Yeah. And it's uh, uh, probably an important thing to mention um, in terms of uh, trying to compare it to, uh, to other things that probably would have people outraged and demanding that government does, don't go ahead with it. If, if the government put forward a piece of legislation to tap everyone's phone, there is no way they would get it through. And it's not that they would. Ha it's not that they would have people there listening to every conversation everyone makes. They couldn't, but it wouldn't get through because people wouldn't be okay with the idea that the government could go back and listen to any conversation in the past two years if they wanted to. Let's let's distinguish though and be clear about the division between metadata and the content of the communication. Yeah. So I mean, the difference there would be that. I mean, the government's not proposing to listen to the conversation. No. They're I mean, do you think that no, people... I wasn't making that point. Oh, sorry, I misunderstood you. So you're saying that, like, if the government kept a record of every telephone call you made? No, I'm saying if... The sorry, I obviously didn't explain it well. Uh, it's a hypothetical that has, you know, would have people outraged because they would say it's going too far. The this hypothetical of tapping phones? Yeah. But what I'm saying is that's not analogous because... Tapping a phone is actually accessing the content of the conversation. Yeah, but we've we've just spent the past twenty minutes talking about how much they people can find, how much the government can find out about um, about you through metadata. Yeah, it is analogous. It's yeah, I it's fuzzy though because the weird thing about metadata is that in some places it's more revealing and in some places less. And that's why there's an argument to be made that it's less revealing than actual content, because in, it is in some cases. Um, I mean, there's the... the so you disagree that people would be outraged if uh, and wouldn't allow a government to uh, tap every phone? I, I agree with you that they would be... People would not allow for that to happen. Yeah. And they're allowing for this to happen despite the fact that it's really giving the government the opportunity to go back at any time yeah. and find out huge amounts of personal information about a person. I agree that in that way it's analogous, but I, I am not sure that people would be against the government keeping a record of who you called uh, and how long you called them for and where you called them from. And that arguably is more analogous to what's going on with metadata than the content of the phone call. Do you think that people would be outraged about the idea of their telephone calls being tracked in that way? Yeah. Maybe not to quite the same extent, but I don't think... Definitely it, not I, the same extent. I don't think it'd get up. You don't think? No. Yeah. You have more faith in people than I do. <laughs> I'm not sure at this point. I never would have thought that this was possible, honestly. So I'm not sure that that wouldn't be possible. Although I agree that there'd be more of a stink about it because people would actually understand yeah. what's going on. And so the difficult thing, this raises and reveals a really interesting question here. How much of the assent of the Australian people is based on ignorance and how much of it is based on the sort of just acceptance that privacy is something that is not worth being insistent about? Yeah, that's an, that's an, interesting, uh, that's an interesting question. I don't have an answer on it. Um, I feel like it's majority ignorance. Just to put a rule of, just to put a kind yeah. of general. I would, yeah, I wouldn't be able to put a number on it though. No, neither. Um, right. I, I suspect you're right that most people just don't realise what this means. Put it this way. Um, I think I was saying this to you before. 
I have built websites, set up analytics platforms to analyze how people behave. And with the analytics platform I use, it's called Mixpanel, you can actually watch people using your site in real time. And you can actually get a good sense of the personality of the person from just watching how they navigate your page, how much time they spend on different things, what they click on, what they try and figure out. Because you can actually tell how much time they spend trying to understand a feature. So you can get a really, really sort of good sense of not just what a person is doing, but who they are. And I'm not sure. So to me, it's just clear that metadata is fucking scary as shit. But I, I mean, I just, I think it's majority ignorance. And I think it's because if people knew what I knew about how, in, how, how comprehensive the insights are that you yeah. can derive from this, they would just never be okay with the government having access to it without a warrant. Yeah. And one thing which, uh, you know, might end up um, uh, ultimately reversing this, I would hope, um, is uh, part of the legislation is the ability for people to request their own metadata. Now, I couldn't help but notice immediately that request doesn't mean that you'll actually get it. It doesn't mean that you'll get all of it. It doesn't mean that you'll get it in a timely manner. Um, uh, oh, can I just... But yeah, as, Assuming that people actually do get to see their metadata and how much um, you know, it gives away, then hopefully, you know, you know, more people might start realising uh, and you might finally start seeing some outrage. Yeah, uh, if they're going to... I mean, I know privacy law. I practice in it quite often as yeah. a lawyer. And the current privacy regime actually has certain guarantees about being able to ask people who retain personal information on you to give that information to you. It's likely that they'll plug into that existing okay. scheme. And if they do, then there are time limits. Um, for instance, 30 days okay. is considered timely. Um, there are... Uh, are there limits on how much they have to uh, give? Do they have to give all Yes, the they need request? to give you all information that okay. they hold on you that's considered personal information, although unfortunately that's a blurry definition. Okay. Because personal information is any information that can reasonably ascertain the identity of an individual. Now, reasonably ascertain is a very blurry concept because if I give you a telephone number, that's obviously a unique identifier. But if I give you three of my food preferences, you might not be able to tell who I am unless you cross-reference that with other data. Yeah. And so arguably, almost all information, if it's used in conjunction with other information, yes. is personal information. But of course, our legislators have not really come to terms with this. So generally, it's generally considered that personal information is only stuff like emails, telephone numbers, addresses, yeah. even though the reality is, is that most information is actually personal information. But yeah, I don't want to get off on sort of the legal tangent yeah. here. But I mean, so basically, just um, I suppose to sum up why this is, uh, you know, if the net neutrality story was a great one for freedom of expression and Western society as a whole, and I think it was. Why this one is 
terrible and depressing news for freedom of expression and Western society as a whole is that at the end of the day, it's a clear limitation on privacy, which is a clear limitation on freedom of expression. And it seems to be accepted by people. Yeah. And I think it's because, until now, the government did not have the ability to rifle through your personal papers, so to speak. Yeah. Unless they kicked your door in. Yeah. Unless they opened your safe. Unless they showed you a warrant. Unless they showed you a motherfucking warrant. Yeah, yeah. And now they can look at that kind of information about you without having to kick the door in. And I would submit <laughs> to our listeners that it really wasn't the fact that someone was coming onto your premises that that was the issue previously. Mm. The issue was is that they were going through the information that was located on your premises. Like that was actually yeah. the problem. That's what people were worried about. And for some reason, because they're not coming onto your premises to get all this information about you, people have just lost the sense that that's unacceptable. Yeah. I think that's basically the difference. I mean, even in the 18th century, <laughs> the idea of search and seizure of personal effects was just considered an anathema to the democracy that they established in the United States. But for whatever reason, a, a perfectly analogous activity now is considered okay. Yeah. Although, no, I shouldn't say perfectly analogous, but definitely to some point analogous. Especially considering, by the way, we're not really aware of the full extent of the actual content collection let alone metadata collection. But um, I think an interesting thing would be essentially to build a picture about a person using metadata and then say, okay, like this is the picture we can build of you just through your metadata. Yeah. Are you comfortable with the government being able to get to that picture of you without a warrant? I think that if you put it in those terms and showed people just how many insights can be derived from data, Many more people would say, no, this is unacceptable, and are currently saying it. Yeah. Yeah. Depressing. Well, I feel like we've reached at some point, like some kind of provisional conclusion on the reason for this, which is probably just this kind of the lack of immediacy and the lack of understanding is probably the most important driver here. Mm. It, that's the conclusion I'm reaching as we discuss yeah. it. Yeah. I think people. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, the government is obviously pushing the terrorism uh, angle hard on it. Yeah. Uh, and there might be some people who <coughs> go along with that, but I think you're right. I think in most cases, people just don't quite get it. Yeah. And I think, to be honest with you, the other unfortunate fact is is that the judiciary is going to be a, a sort of, in some way, an overseer of this when people choose to litigate on it. And I just don't think that judiciary is really across the kinds of insights that can be derived from metadata um, and that anyone who argues against this in a court is going to have to be super careful about ensuring that the, the judge in front of them understands just how insightful you can be when you have this kind of data. Um, yeah, anyway. Yeah. Um, I don't want to end on such a depressing note. So I am going to spend two minutes now talking about something that made me really happy this week, 
that's a great idea. <laughs> that's a great idea. Pat, oh, you're probably right. not going to be able to contribute to this too, too much. Uh, for those of you who don't know, um, and you probably won't, I love sport and Pat hates sport. Um, and uh, I have my theories on this. And it basically comes down to the fact that Pat is uh, much more interested in ideas and I am much more interested in stories. Um, As a reasonable theory, you're not wrong about me being interested in ideas. And can I just put the caveat? I mean, I love playing sport. <laughs> I continue to play sport. I just can't fucking watch it. Like, it just bores me to death. And I also, there's this implicit, purist, arrogant, I'll admit, criticism of people who spend their time watching sport than watching legislative developments that compromise our freedoms. <laughs> yeah, anyway, okay. back, to, back, back, to to, back to stories and the importance of stories. For me, uh, watching sport is like reading an adventure novel or something like that. It, I, uh, I watch sport um, because it's, you know, it's heroes and villains and comebacks and crushing defeats and glorious victories. And this week in the Cricket World Cup, Afghanistan won its first ever World Cup match with a bunch of players who learned the game in refugee camps um, on the Pakistani borders, um, who, uh, who train while bombs are going off around them, you know, literally in many cases. Um, and in, uh, in Dunedin, in southern New Zealand, played an absolutely incredible match that kept swinging back and forth uh, and ended up winning the game by the narrowest of margins. And pretty much every sports fan in, uh, in Australia, in India, in Pakistan, um, were on their side in England. Um, and on the same day that 120 people, I think, died in Afghanistan, um, in, uh, in avalanches, and I don't know how many more um, died in just you know, random Afghani violence, um, the nation was celebrating and had something, uh, something great to feel. Um, so well done, the Afghanistani cricket team. That was my favourite story of the week, and it was a great story. No, I agree. That's a good way to end the podcast. Happy days are here again for Afghanistan. Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs>